Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mangum Talks TV. I am Lee. I am here. I'm joined by Spencer. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. We are on our third show, Spencer. Uh, as a question that you just raised is that it's our fourth show we've done of television, but this is the third show of Mangum Talks TV. Correct. Yes, we started gotcha. with the GOT Guy Questions podcast. We did Chernobyl on Mangum Talks TV, and we recently have wrapped up Succession, where we did season one and two, and now we have moved on, as promised, to The Mandalorian. Oh. Yes, The Mandalorian. It is a uh, a show that is only available on Disney Plus, mm-hmm. and it is a basically like a spaghetti western set in the Star Wars universe five years after the end of Return of the Jedi. So we're going to start. We're going to do our normal Magnum Talks TV, you know, sort of uh, thing where we do, I do a recap and we have some segments. But we're going to start because we're entering the Star Wars universe with a little bit of background on your experience with the Star Wars universe and mine. Mm-hmm. So, Spencer, do you want to go first? Sure. I mean, my beginnings with the Star Wars universe really began with my parents, who I didn't really, really realize until I was a little bit older were huge Star Wars fans. Back when the movies came out. Like, saw them multiple times in theaters. I only was ever really exposed to it when I was going through their VHS collection. Uh, that to show you how old this damn story is. And there was a boxed set of the original three Star Wars films. And I had no idea what they were, but the cover looked damn cool. And so I just put the first one in. And I proceeded to rapidly watch all three. And I was like six or seven at the time, but... Good God, were these amazing. It was an astounding moment that just really rapidly informed my love of the Star Wars material. And my parents were only too happy to accommodate it because they enjoyed it too. Of course, some of the earliest video games I played were ones that my dad had gotten for himself that I played along with him. And they were set in the Star Wars universe of where there was Dark Forces, which was kind of a Doom clone first-person shooter. There was X-Wing and there were TIE Fighter, uh, space combat simulators. There was even, you know, there was any genre of game I could find I was adoring in the Star Wars universe. I was asking them for Christmas to buy me materials about character guides and encyclopedias, various novels set about Admiral Thrawn or the initial battles after the Battle of Endor. It was utter catnip to me for so damn long, and I adored it so much. And even, you know, like those little moments where you're imagining little scenarios when you're just idling. Star Wars would always inform about 50% of my little fantasy imaginings I go into because it was my imagination for years upon years. It was my fantasy, and I was so glad to have found it. And it helped connect me into friends. It helped me make me enemies and mortal enemies like yourself. <laughs> we'll it get is, into that. Yeah. <laughs> it has been an utter delight uh, from the get-go. And now I've had quibbles about some of the more recent films, but the importance of the Star Wars material, particularly the Legends Star Wars material to me, is beyond compare. It, it, before I became a fan of Lord of the Rings, before I became a fan of any other material, Star Wars was the beginning, and it has set the structure for all that has followed. Yeah, and I'm the same way. And I, I would like to point out that um, my relationship with the Star Wars universe is very much uh, related to my brother. My, my brother, he's 10 years older than me, and he got me into Star Wars, and it's something that we connected with. We've talked about for countless hours. We've read all of the old Legends books, the stuff that's not canon anymore. Um, we watched the movies, I don't know how many times. And when I think of Star Wars, I always think of my brother. So shout out you, Wayne. Love you, brother. Um, I will say this, that in recent years, my 
relationship with the Star Wars universe is very nostalgic, like a lot of people. Sure. And <laughs> I have a tendency when I am nostalgic about something or I like something to give it the benefit of the doubt. Um, if you want a reference for that, check out our GOT Got Questions podcast season eight. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I've done that with the recent movies and I still like them. You know, you and I have argued about them, but it's it's a nostalgic thing for me. Much like yourself, I liked Star Wars before any other fantasy that I ever followed. So I, it mm-hmm. was before Lord of the Rings, before Game of Thrones, before anything. It was Star Wars for me. Now, I will point out that the the prequel, uh, the prequel series, episode one, two, and three, <laughs> I was actually working at a movie theater in my hometown. And I knew the manager of the movie theater really well. Hmm. And we were able to, the night before each one of those opened, we were able to have a screening just for our friends. You had a private screening of the prequels? Yes. Oh, you must have been the night before with just our friends. How many people could you bring in? As many as we wanted to. I mean, it was an open movie theater. How were you not the most popular kid in school? I was pretty popular. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was great. And I remember specifically... Like we had about maybe 75 people there or something for episode two, Attack of the Clones. And when Yoda pulled out the lightsaber, mm-hmm. literally all of my friends stood up and started cheering. <laughs> so like that, I mean, you know, it's moments like that where you're like, oh man, like that, you know, it really resonates with you. So I was really excited to watch The Mandalorian. Now, as you pointed out, uh, the newer movies have a bit of a problem Uh but I would say that Mandalorian kind of gets everything back on the rails, right? Mandalorian is the masterstroke that I wanted the newer films to be. Of where, like you said, they have to be in some have a touch of nostalgia. They have to have references back to the main series and be grounded in a wonderful universe they've established. Because that's why most of us are there. But they also can't be afraid to do their own thing. And we've talked about with the new films, like I enjoyed The Force Awakens for its nostalgia value, but it was afraid to be anything other than a carbon copy version of the first three films kind of smooshed all together. The second one had some guts to make some steps, some missteps too, but it got so much criticism from the fan base for it, they made the third one, which is decidedly safe. And so seeing something that was willing to work in the Star Wars mythos, but also be its own thing successfully and have the confidence to do that, was something I've been longing for. And Mandalorian really, really has done it well. Yeah, I agree. And it's a bit of a background for the audience. So Spencer and I watched um, episode, uh, I guess, what is it, six, seven? Um, uh, Return of the Jedi. What, 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 what do we watch, Spencer? Remind me. What do, you, what do you mean? The Last Jedi, sorry. Last Jedi, sorry, yeah. I blanked. Um, and at the end of it, Spencer had some problems with it, quibbles, as he pointed out earlier, and I berated him the entire way home. Um, <laughs> like, literally, like, and, and actually, like, it made it people in the car uncomfortable at how much I was yelling at Spencer. And so when The Mandalorian came out, I was like, dude, you need to watch this. And I think, Spencer, tell me if I'm wrong, you were a little bit skeptical. You were like, well, you always tell me to watch Star Wars stuff. And I was like, well, no. Dude, you're going to get faith in the series again if you just watch this show. Yeah, you told me this, but you also proposed that I watch it sitting next to you in your house. And I'm like, oh man, if I don't like this, he's going to murder me in his own home. He's got castle doctrine rights. I don't even know what he's going to do to me. <laughs> but but it did that, right? I mean, it gave you faith that, you know, maybe the Star Wars canon going forward can kind of get it back online. 
it, it again told me that, I mean, it, it really shows the value of a competent helmer for a show. We've seen that before with Game of Thrones and the materials that as much as the writing of the individual episodes can matter, as much as the various production values or actors are important, really having a guy running the ship is so key and so important. A showrunner or a director, whatever else. Such a and great if, point, yeah. And as you said before we even got on, John Favreau is a guy that gives me a lot of confidence based on what I've seen of him in this show. Yeah, and I don't know if uh, anybody knows John Favreau. So he starred in Swingers, and then he did, I don't know, God, I don't know how many other um either movies or he directed or produced, but he got into the star Wars universe and now he is like locked in and he does this food show called chef show on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And there's a specific episode that he does from Lucasfilms, uh, like the, the studio. And in it, he actually starts talking about the star Wars universe. And it's so incredible because it's so clear. This guy is ner I mean, like Spencer, he he's like a Jedi. Yeah, <laughs> he knows the Star Wars universe in and out. So he's a perfect showrunner for the for the show. And I'm not surprised Mandalorian was really good because of it. Yeah, and it is so important to have somebody that loves the material for doing it. But it also takes somebody that is willing to wield it and direct it with a competent hand, with a deft hand. And he pulls that off masterfully. I mean. Look, going through his prior material when I looked him up before mm -hmm. we watched the show, I was a little bit uncertain because he's he's done a lot of films that I've liked, but that's, it can be a bit of a mixed bag. But for this, he's just bringing his A game nonstop. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's jump into the episode. We're going to do a recap. This is episode one. We're only doing episode one. I don't know if we're going to stick to one episode of Mandalorian per one episode of Mangum Talks TV. For now, we're going to do that, and we're going to see how it goes. And then we're going to jump into some segments. We have mm -hmm. uh, line of the episode, which we always do on Megan Talks TV. And then we also have a segment where we're just going to talk about what in the show, you know, kind of brought back some of that Star Wars nostalgia. Yeah. What kind of spoke to you? What, what connected you to the original canon? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, another segment I think I've proposed, and part of the reason we're only doing one episode of this is because you've seen in our prior running through of shows, our first episodes are often a bit of a hot mess when we try to try out various segments and see whether they go <laughs> long or not. Yeah, we're just we're fiddling with them to see how they work. We think these will go okay, but we're not certain until they really go through their trial by fire. But another one I thought would be fun is that each of these episodes, in very much classic Western style, uh, Western even comic book style, are they're well, very episodic. And they, each one is very much centered around kind of the bounty of the episode. The goal he's looking to accomplish, often, given he's a bounty hunter, the task he's been, he's been assigned for pay. And we're going to debate, from our perspective, if we were put in that scenario, looking at it from entirely a, you know, backseat driver, was that bounty worth it? From what he endured, from what ultimate reward he got, was what he put, tasked himself with this episode worth the labor? And... Some episodes we're going to agree with what decisions he chose to make. Other episodes centered around primarily acquiring eggs. We might have contrary views of what decisions he, we, we, he was forced upon him, but we'll find out. <laughs> yep. All right. So was that bounty worth it? That's another segment. All right. Let's get in the recap. It starts with the Mandalorian busting into a bar to take a target into custody. Mm -hmm. uh, this guy is blue. He's not a human. And I like the spaghetti western music, the do 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 that oh, kind of yeah. place. Very Sergio kind of stuff. It's it's just great. It's clearly you know it's a it's a Star Wars episodic western, which is really mm -hmm. good. And um, some guy confronts Mando. 
makes references mm-hmm. to Biscari steel, steel only Mandalorians have or use for their armor. Spencer, do you have any background on Biscari steel? Not really. I mean, is, is this something that's become a much bigger deal when it comes into the new material that developed the Mandalorians that I really know about? But the main thing we know about it from this is that it is essentially impenetrable. That this is the Star Wars equivalent of adamantium. That it is utterly resistant to blaster bolts and even pretty damn well resistant to blunt force trauma, too. And so it is exceptionally valuable and partly as a result of the fact that the Mandalorians, as a res- due to the great purge as they refer to it, have been cast to the five winds as by the imper- by imperial efforts. It has become very rare, particularly outside of imperial control. So the the one thing I would I would question there is, it's not impenetrable, but it can take a blaster even in 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 close range. But mm-hmm. it can't take multiple blasters. Or at right. least that's what how they kind of set it up in the legends books. And also, it can take a errant shot from a lightsaber, but it can't take a direct you know sort of stab from a lightsaber. Right. So it's it's the str- it's stronger steel than anything else we've seen in the Star Wars universe, mm-hmm. but it, it's not completely impenetrable. Right, and sec- like you said, the fact that it's uh, lightsaber resistant is a very key point because other than yeah. like cortosis, there are very few things that stop a lightsaber blade. That is a key part of the lore that it will cut through damn anything. So the fact that it's even resistant is a key part of going back in the Star Wars legend lore why the Mandalorians have been the mortal off and on enemy of the Jedi for a long damn time. They are one of the few groups that has actually successfully fought the Jedi on an even playing field and won in wholesale conflicts. And that's more part of their more distant history than it is really in the present, but it does inform you a degree of these guys have a weird tradition going back thousands of years of recorded Star Wars history, fighting even the most incredible warriors that we know exist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the blue guy, who is the target, tries to buy off Mando with credits. Now, I'm not sure what credits he's using, but this comes up again uh, over and over again in the series where it's five years after the end of the Empire. So some people are still using Empire credits, but apparently they don't spend as well as, you know, other things like Biscar Steel or or whatever. So you can kind of think about, you know, like if, if the federal government collapsed, you would still have dollars in circulation, but people would probably want something like gold, right? Or, right. or silver. That's, that's kind of what's going on here. And it's, again, strongly suggests the current state that the New Republic is in, is that it's, again, as you said, we're like five years after, after the Battle of uh, Endor. New Republic maybe has established some control over certain of the core worlds and the inner systems, but out here on the frontier and the outer, in the outer realm, mm-hmm. their level of influence is minimal at best. To the degree Republic credits even exist, out here, they're essentially valueless. The currencies we see thrown around here are very much, like you said, either imperial credits, because there's probably enough of them were produced and the empire had control essentially everywhere, and the currencies of particularly powerful individual worlds. I think we at one point we see Mon Calamari credits, or, or um, Mon Calamari Flan or something, I think they're referred to, mm-hmm. because the Calamari people and the, and the world of Mon Calamari is incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful. There's a lot of influence through their massive ship trade. But in terms of a central government credit, really hasn't been established well enough to make it out here to the the, the uh, fringe yet. Right. And so Mando, of course, rejects uh, his uh, potential payout, and he shows him the fob. A fob is something that uh, bounty hunters get that shows them, you know, basically all of the personal identifiable information about the client, the person that they're, well, not the client, but the target, who they're going after. And the guy, you know, kind of backs up and Mando gives him the line. This is his line. I can bring you in warm or I can bring you in cold. 
<laughs> and I'd say very wisely, this guy chooses to submit. Because I don't think from what he just saw, how the Mandalorian treated those two guys that were in the bar brawl with him, he is in any way bluffing right now. <laughs> he starts warm, he, start, he ends cold, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, in terms of gnarly scenes, seeing that one corn cut in half by that friggin' door, yeah, that was almost unexpected to me. Yeah, it starts out hot. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's definitely like it's a western in that way. Like, there's you know, it, you know, it's interesting because as I was doing the notes, I was thinking about our Succession podcast and how it's so dialogue driven. That like I had like when we would do a succession podcast, I would have like seven or eight like actual single type pages mm-hmm. uh, for a recap. This one's like a page and a half because it's a lot of action. It's a lot of action. It's also willing to do a lot of just silent moments of characters walking or going places. It's willing to just let the music kind of inform the scene, which doesn't necessarily give us much to describe, but makes for very fun watching. Yeah, agreed. Uh, back to the recap, Mando meets someone and asks for passage. Presumably back to his ship, Mando and the prisoner get escorted back to the ship, and the man um, who takes, uh, <laughs> they are driving, sorry, they're uh, driving over the over ice, and the vehicle that took him to the ship gets overtaken by some sort of huge creature that comes up from under the ice. Mm-hmm. A key moment here as well, too, is that this is the second car that was offered to him as kind of a shuttle there. He rejected the first car. Remember yep. why? Droid. And that's our first hint here that Mando has a bit of a thing with droids. Really doesn't like droids. And it comes up over and over again. He rejects the first one. He takes the second one. He goes over the ice. The creature comes up, tries to take Mando's ship under. What stuck out to me here is how cool Mando was during this whole thing. Because oh, yeah. like it, it looked as if this massive creature was going to take his entire ship under. Mando keeps his cool, takes out this huge spear, which we've seen before in the Star Wars lore deals with the the creature and off he goes yeah it's one of the things that they work with so well with him being faceless is that it lets you inform this aspect of his character that he is utterly stoic and unflappable or at least puts forward the image of it being we learn more over time that there's a deeper personality here as well Mm -hmm. but the image the mandalorians present and that he acts with particularly these early scenes is whatever comes in front of me i am capable of dealing with it yeah, and they really set that precedent early because he he deals with this like a champ mm-hmm. and uh, knocks the creature back. He takes off. As they're in, in flight, presumably to take the blue guy back to whatever client that Mando is working for, blue guy attempts to make small talk with Mando. He mentions Mandalorians never take off their helmet, which isn't completely true, is it, Spencer? No, it's an aspect essentially of their vows, of their commitment um, it's part of essentially being their knight errant kind of self, but it's an aspect of doing that. It's not necessarily inherent to their culture. Now we have an instance in the Star Wars lore of a Mandalorian who does take his helmet off pretty regularly. Do you know who that is? Uh, is it Boba Fett? Jango Fett, he, yeah. Yeah, Jango Fett is, is you know, father. Boba yeah, Fett's yeah Boba Fett's father, yeah. I mean, like we see in episode two, Attack of the Clones, he takes his helmet off all the time. Right, though he, I think it would be a stretch to say, is really adhering to the classical Mandalorian values. You think he sold out? <laughs> well, I, th- I think he openly represents himself as a mercenary. Yeah, I think that, that that's probably fair. The blue guy then needs to use the, the vacuum, he says, <laughs> to evacuate his thorax. Uh, kind of gross. <laughs> yeah, that's not a visual. I'm glad that's a visual we didn't get. Yeah, he, he's, he goes below. He says he's molting, and he looks around. He sees Mando's guns. 
what's what's he trying to do here? I mean, uh, very unclear. Because when he sees the guns, he even closes the closet back again, right? So it's yeah. like you're you're not even trying to get a gun and like uh, deal with Mando. You're just kind of looking around. Is this just rank curiosity if you want to know the kind of person you're traveling with? Because it was baffling to me. It's like, there's a weapon locker right there. You're not even going to try for one of these things right now? Okay. Yeah, because the first time I watched it, I thought, oh, he's going to take one of those guns. And then he just closes it and kind of looks around like, oh, I hope he didn't see that. Which is probably a good call for the sake of his long-term well-being. But it caught me off guard. Yep. Mando eventually joins him and puts him in carbonite. (laughs) Spencer, you want to give any background on carbonite? Uh, Carbonite was made famous by the Empire Strikes Back of where it was essentially a process used at Cloud City as part of their mining efforts and was never intended for transport of prisoners. But it became famous for, in an effort to essentially test uh, putting Luke in Carbonite to ship him back to the Emperor so he can, you know, force-capable individual he is, couldn't prove any threat to their efforts to transport him. Lord Vader orders Han placed into Carbonate to then be shipped with Boba Fett back to Jabba the Hutt as part of him also making a side bounty off the bounty he just received from the Empire. And that plays out very much of where the plot goes for the second, for the last part of uh, The Empire Strikes Back and the beginning of The Return of the Jedi. Great backstory. <clears throat> Mando then shows up to a cantina. Yet another thing uh, to Got get nostalgia about. Yeah, right? Because like we have the, nost- uh, the cantina scene in A New Hope. And he meets with some guy. This no, he guy. meets with Carl Weathers. He meets with Carl Weathers. Let's be clear. No, I don't care what he, this character's name is. It's Carl Weathers. Uh, I'm going to correct you, sir. It is Grief Karga, but what we're going to call him is Apollo Creed, my friend. Okay, just to make sure. It's like, you're either going to pick his character Apollo from Creed. Rocky. You're either going to pick his character from Rocky or you're going to pick his character from Predator. You had to go with one of those two right now. I'm totally doing Rocky. It's Apollo okay. Creed. So the, for the rest of the recap, I'm calling this guy Apollo Creed. The guy tries to pay him in Imperial credits. Mando does not like that. He threatens him. The guy has some other credits, but not as much as the bounty was on the blue guy. Which is really uh-huh. interesting. The fact he so despises the idea of accepting Imperial credits, he takes half in Mon Calamari Flan instead. Well, I mean, I think the idea is that like it's almost like inflation in a sense. Yeah. Where... You know, you, you don't want to take a potentially inflated currency, something that's going to inflate in the future, because it's just going to lose value. And I think yeah. he knows imperial credits are not going to spend. I mean, they may spend a day, but mm-hmm. not in five years, not in 10 years, right? No, particularly not with the investment he intends these credits to be used for, as well as the fact that they may be legal restrictions even on using them in more polite systems. Yep. Mando delivers the blue guy. Mando is still looking for work. Apollo Creed offers him multiple bail jumpers. So lots of bail jumpers. Yeah. And I got the sense that this is kind of like low level work for a bounty hunter. It's nothing. Meat and potatoes. Yeah. Nothing's going to make you any money. Uh, And, oh, he mentions that the clients that he's working with don't pay guild rates. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about the guild. Yeah. Yeah. This is the bounty hunter guild. And uh, Mando is a part of it. We know that Boba Fett was a part of it. What else do we know about the guild, Spencer? This is a little bit of a gap in my knowledge, where most of the guild I actually learned about from this. It wasn't much of the material that I read about when I was growing up. But from what we see in this, the guild is essentially a regulated professional organization that has official authority to operate as a mix between bail bondsmen and 
professional government-sanctioned mercenaries, almost like with letters of mark kind of thing. Right. Uh, of where they have the full authority of the government to perform the mission they set. And as long as they are wielding those things, they are operating with the authority of the law in regions that otherwise wouldn't have it. Um, now, that's only the, the, the planets that are participating in the government. That is right. only the planets which are yeah. with the government. Out here on the frontier, Unclear. it has... It's a much grayer kind of situation. They're still right. often accepting government contracts, be they local or more distant. But there's a little bit more flexibility with what kind of people they're willing to, willing to accept contracts from, as we see. Yep. And uh, Apollo Creed says that the highest bounty is $5,000, which, or 5,000 whatever credits or whatever, and Mando claims that won't even cover fuel. I imagine that's true. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a sense from Apollo Creed that he thought that was that was hyperbolic. And Apollo mentions there is one other job, but there is no puck for it. So and you have to go face-to-face with the client. So Mando says, okay, I'll, I'll take it. And he goes off to meet the client. And, and Spencer, it's Werner Herzog. It is Werner Herzog, who we will refer to as Werner Herzog from here on out. Because that I was so amazed it was Werner friggin' Herzog. So I watched the show, you know, before you, and then over New Year's, you and I watched it together. And one of the things you pointed out to me, which, you know, is absolutely true, is the cast of this show is incredible. I mean, we just, we just had Apollo Creed. Now we got Warner Herzog and it gets better from here. I mean, yeah. continue, I mean the, the, the gets that John Favreau had for this show is absolutely impressive. It is legitimately, I'm caught off guard at times by the people he gets into this episode. Because before yep. we're done, again, forget, the freaking Mandalorian's Pedro Pascal, who's still, you know, in terms of his popularity, a relatively new actor, but he's still a big git. Yeah, Red Viper. Our, our freaking, you know, ungot that we get later is voiced by Nick Nolte. We all said that too. Yeah, no, <laughs> I didn't know that until I started, like, looking, you know, through this show, you know, or, for, or uh, doing research for this podcast. But I was like, what? Shit, Nick Nolte. Yeah, it's it's just uh, and the hits keep coming as far as the cast. So we got Werner Herzog, uh, Werner Herzog, and uh, this character doesn't have a name and is never given a name. He's just called the client, mm-hmm. and he's got stormtroopers, very dirty stormtroopers. Spencer, five years after Return of the Jedi, there's still stormtroopers. I mean, it's I'm sure it's just part of appearances at this point that if you are an imperial faction, you have stormtroopers. It's part of carrying the flame. But as said, these guys are looking rough. This, yeah, they don't look good. And, and even the client, we don't know at this point what level of position he has, but the fact that this is his entourage does not impress too much about the current state of the Imperial Remnant. No, not at all. He says Apollo told him that he was the best in the Parsec. And a character called Dr. Pershing clumsily walks in and draws out, everyone draws their weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the doctor apologizes and everybody chills. Quote, uh, this is a quote from Warner Herzog. His enthusiasm outweighs his discretion. Mm-hmm. This comes up later. It does. So remember this doctor, Dr. Pershing. Yeah, one of the main things we get out of this scene, because you know, they eventually, we'll get into the details of the contract, but one of the main things we get out of Warner Herzog in this scene, and I'm having so much fun naming these characters by different what they're actually called. <laughs> no, we're confusing the hell out of the audience. <laughs> no, they will work with us over the course of these episodes. Um, but it's, Really interesting to see the level of professionalism that he brings to bear right now. Of where, when this guy walks in and all the stormtroopers pull their guns on Mando when he pulls his gun on the scientist, he's the one that immediately calms things down. Yep. And he does it both then and later through an element of cultural understanding. 
of where this guy is clearly pretty well informed about the Mandalorian people and has an understanding of aspects of their culture and their background and what is valuable to them. And he plays off those well. And though we often have a stereotype, particularly when we see in the new films with like the First Order, of where Imperial officers are just a collection of up-jump blowhards who can only you know yell every third line, this guy never Ooh. raises his voice. This guy never in any way gets angry or in any way acts like he's not in control. He is calm, he is quiet, he is disciplined, and he immediately brings this conversation back to terms, despite the fact everyone had their guns drawn a second ago. Yeah, completely agree. Um, <clears throat> the client offers Mando a down payment. This down payment, very interesting. Not Imperial credits, not any other kind of credits. It's in the form of Baskar steel. This is the steel we talked about earlier. It's used to forge Mandalorian armor. Uh, as, as previously discussed, it can direct, it can repel a direct blaster shot, but it also is claimed to be able to deal with a lightsaber strike. Mm-hmm. Although I don't think we've seen any evidence of that in the current canon. No. I think we saw some in Legends, but I don't think we have any in current canon. No, we saw a brief fight between Jango Fett and I think it was Obi-Wan in, um, I guess it was Attack of the Clones. Yeah, which so too, we- yeah. We didn't get much there to really work with. And I don't think Luke ever used his lightsaber on Boba Fett in the film. So it is definitely a key part of the lore. And a key part of the lore that even the Jedi themselves put forward as part of portraying the Mandalorians as being this almost boogeyman to them. But level of verification is, is kind of mixed. No, but I think the, the important thing here is to note that this is the payment that the Mandalorian really wants. This is oh, what Mando like clearly very much values. And uh, he says he's he's down. The client says he's paying for the delivery of the asset. The doctor does jump in, and this is uh, Dr. Pershing, and he insists that the asset must be taken alive. Mm-hmm. Now, Spencer, I don't know if you caught that moment. When he says that, Werner Herzog goes, ah, yeah, pff, alive. Like, it's very flippant for him. Mm-hmm. But for the doctor, it's very important that the asset is taken alive. For the, for the doctor, it's like when the, um, I think Werner Herzog even originally says that it's dead or alive, and the doctor goes, that is not what we agreed to, which is an interesting way of discuss of referring to that. It, mm-hmm. Not what we agreed to suggests a certain degree of even independence in their dealings, which is interesting. And as you said, he just kind of very flippantly just shrugs and goes, "I know how bounty hunting operations work. Mm-hmm. These things happen. I understand." Which the doctor's not happy about. He does not like that. That's even being discussed as a possibility. But we also learn later that the instruction of taking the the asset alive clearly isn't given to every bounty hunter who given goes a, after the asset. Given essentially to no one other than the Mandalorian, it seems. And that would make me think that the doctor really kind of, you know, took a shot here because he doesn't want the asset to die. And he thinks that, you know, given the Mandalorian, you know, sort of mystique, that maybe this guy actually can go get the asset. That's and if so... This is his time to jump in and say, hey, please don't kill it. That is a very interesting point. That is a very clever idea right there. Because it definitely seems like he's p- uh, portraying his in- his intrusion as being accidental and just, you know, his own awkwardness. But you're, you're right. It probably is a much more intentional act. Yep. Uh, the client provides Mando a tracking fob for the asset, which I do not understand the mechanics of the tracking fob. <laughs> it confuses the hell out of me. I actually have in my notes, Spencer, can you explain this question mark? <laughs> no, and I don't think the show really bothers to either. It's just being, it's, it doesn't, it's, 
I have no idea. I don't yeah, know. I just don't understand. So apparently it's a, so just so folks know, apparently it's a, a fob that you can point in certain directions or I guess in certain planets. It seems to work across the universe and you can figure out where the asset is. I just have absolutely no idea how they're able to do this, but it clearly does work because in future episodes we see that the, the fob works. Mando has it. Other bounty hunters have it. I just yes. don't understand it. I'm guessing we could try to explain it as being like a genetic sample, is that it is uniquely tied to the individual you're searching for, and so you will always be able to find them as a result of that. But as said, they just kind of are confident enough just to, for us to just hand wave it, is that this is how it works. You don't honestly really want to know how it works. You just want to know that it works. So just go with us. So before this scene ends, we do hear from Warden Herzog that the client or the, the, the asset is 50 years old. Yeah. That he can't give the usual information. The only he's able to provide it, that where it's it's fifty years old and what its last known location is, which pretty much is the planet, even. And he gives him the fob. That's it. Yeah. Um, and a, yep. a note, a, he also gives him a, an advance payment, at least part of the advance payment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So some of that Beskar steel, and Mando uses that to walk into an alley and meets with a smith. This is a Mandalorian smith, and uh, he provides that down payment of Beskar steel, and she mentions the steel was gathered in the Great. Perch. Okay, mm-hmm. the Great Perch. This is where the Empire. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna do cliff notes here, Spencer. The sure. Empire had enough of the Mandalorian shit. It <laughs> went to their home planet and basically succeeded at killing them all. There was just a number, like a handful of the, well, not a handful, maybe a couple hundred, who actually got out. So basically, what was going on at the time of the rise of the Empire is the Mandalorians, while they are bounty hunters, while they are murder-for-hire type guys, they didn't like the Empire. Mm-hmm. And they were doing things to undermine the Empire. The Empire caught on to it, went to the Mandalorians' home planet, and did the Great Purge, and apparently took a bunch of Beskar steel with them. Right. It's important to note that the Mandalorians, really in this initial period when the Empire was first arising, were much of their military focus was more of a cultural tradition rather than an active thing they were engaging in. A lot of that had been worked out of them as a result of a series of wars in the distant past. But they still had it as a tradition, even if they weren't the expansionist military power they used to be. But the Empire was kind of starting to get worried that they might have intentions there, particularly in the early going when the Empire level of control was still only just being established. And so they nipped that problem in the bud. Now, to the degree that they really cared about the Mandalorians after they destroyed Mandalore, if they kind of obliterated the home planet... Mixed, we see that you know Boba Fett operates in open, wearing armor. I don't think they really cared much after they kind of reduced them to almost being a gypsy race, but they definitely put a lot of resources in place to eliminate them as an organized group. Oh man, that's that's a really great way to put it. Like a gypsy race, like <clears throat> there's like so few of them, but there's this lore around them. Yes, and they've yeah. pretty much been completely destroyed. The Smith mentions that he'll end up with enough steel to create new armor. Uh, I think this is what. The Mandalorian is, you know, after he wants he wants new armor, and that there will be enough left for foundlings. So mm-hmm. foundlings are basically orphans. Yes. Mando says that's good, and that he was once a foundling. And the Smith says she knows. Now we see a flashback, presumably to Mando's childhood, where he was being saved by Mandalorians. So this is really important because we call him the Mandalorian. Everybody calls him the Mandalorian. He actually isn't of the race. He's mm-hmm. not from the planet. He was what? just saved. Which is in keeping, honestly, with Mandalorian tradition, is that it's more of a 
a cultural and ethnic connection rather than necessarily a racial one. That that may have been a distant origin, but it's kind of gone up th- past that sense to the degree an outsider like. Do we ever actually find out what his name is? It's just we'll call him Mando. Uh, I think that's all we have now. Yeah, it's Mando. yeah. <clears throat> that it is not a thing that. He oh no, been, we do we do learn his 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 name later, but it's in like we'll episode get six or seven. Yeah. Um, the, the fact that Mando is not technically a Mandalorian by blood doesn't really matter to them. He's just one of many foundlings they've taken in. Um, it's also notable here as well is that when um, Mando's walking out of the room from Warner Herzog, Warner Herzog says a line along the lines of, it's good that things are getting back where they belong, or something along those lines. He's giving him the steal. It's the yep. right order of things is being reasserted. With the clear implication that, you know, we killed you off back in the day. But this is kind of a moment where we both can rise again, eh? Yeah. I think Mando kind of follows that away, too. He does. But yeah, Mando, a foundling, not a by-blood Mandalorian. That comes up later in this episode and later again in this series. Mando flies to the planet where the tracking uh, fob tells him the asset is at. It looks like Tatooine. I thought it was Tatooine. It isn't Tatooine. No. It is not Tatooine. Tatooine does come up later in the series, but this is not. It is a desert planet, however. I'm sure there's a lot of those, probably, honestly. Yeah. And a very... He, he lands, and he's looking around. He's trying to find the asset. He's using the tracking fob. And a very large creature called a Blurg attacks Mando. And now, a Blurg is like... Based, think of like a fat elephant with short legs <laughs> and no husk. That's yeah. basically what it is. It, it's take take the dewback that we know from Star Wars. Now, kind of cross it with a tiny, very angry T Rex. That's what you got. Yeah, that's kind of what it is. He neutralizes the one, but a second one comes up, and da, 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 it's our boy Quill. Voiced I'm by so Nick glad Nolte. you pronounced that because I was going to butcher that name. Quill, voiced by Nick Nolte. Quill knows that Mando is a bounty hunter. Quill says, "I will help you." And Spencer, the words of the series. Probably line of the episode, I have spoken. Greatest damn line ever. It's so wonderful every time he says it. It's, it's such a it's such a wonderful way to end the end a conversation like a boss. It's I just have spoken. Yeah, the, our conversation is done now because I'm done. Let's go. I gotta tell you, I'm just gonna be honest here. I don't have the confidence to ever deliver no. that line. Like no. not especially not at work. Certainly not to my wife. I don't even think I could tell like you and the fellows that line. I just don't have the confidence. I have spoken. Boom, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> only, only a three foot, three and a half foot, maybe tall Ugnot can make that line work. And he does every time. <laughs> yeah, he repeats this many times. And then we go to inside Cole's house, uh Quill, sorry, Quill's house, and Quill explains. He's helped other bounty hunters to try to capture the asset, but they failed. Quill explains he'll guide Mando to the asset uh, for half. And Mando goes, half? Like, that's kind of a lot. And Quill explains, no, not half of what you're being paid from the client. Half of the blurks. I just want one yeah. blurk. <laughs> to which Mando's almost just baffled by this. But Quill kind of explains essentially is that what I'm getting out of this is peace in my valley. Ever yes. since those guys get there, a nonstop string of dangerous, angry, murderous people have been coming along to try to get something from them. I want it to stop. This is my Shane moment. I want guns out of my valley. Make this happen. 
So a couple things here. One is Mando tries to give him both of the blurgs. <laughs> and Quill explains, no, you're going to need one of them because we kind of can't get through the desert without it. Why? Uh, yeah. Uh, and then the second thing is, I just posit, just from what we know of the character in later episodes, that Quill has no idea what the asset is. Because once he does, he's not so gung-ho about fucking killing the asset right like here he's like yeah just just do your thing but yeah. as soon as he figures out the situation he kind of he, he changes he does a little pivot i agree that right now he's just a very i'd almost describe it as self-centered objective where he just wants this gone doesn't care about the details it's disturbing the peace that he's earned in this valley and yeah he's willing to help mandalore to the degree that helps about he's a relatively generous helpful guy but he has a goal here at first yep. mm -hmm. and like he said, you know, like he says here is that you need to be able to ride a blurg there because I don't have a speeder. You look, you've seen what I own, and this is really far over broken terrain, and you're not. I'm not wasting time walking with you there. Oh yeah, I don't. Even, I don't even think they could walk there. I mean, it, the impression I got is that they would kind of they waste away. Yeah. Now, um, Mando says he doesn't know how to ride a blurg, <laughs> and. Quill, Quill explains that he has spoken. So that's, that's the end of that It's scene. happening now. <laughs> Cut to a very spaghetti Western scene. I mean, this yep. is like 10 out of 10 of Mando trying horse. to ride the blur. Yeah, trying to break a horse. Exactly. That's exactly what he's doing. Quill tells Mando his ancestors once rode the great Mythosaur. I have no idea what that is. I don't no. know what that reference is. No clue at all. I'd almost be willing to believe he just kind of made it up to show to inspire Mandalore to do this. But here's what's interesting is that we know Mando's ancestors are not Mandalorians. Yeah. So Quill assumes that he is of, like like you talked about, the difference between like being like ethnically something and then being culturally something. Ethnically, Mando is not a Mandalorian, but Quill assumes he is and actually invokes his, quote, ancestors, which aren't his ancestors. And what's interesting is that that actually motivates Mando. Yeah. And he and gets up and he goes, you know what? I'm going to figure out this fucking blurk. And he, he, he actually gets on it. And it's really interesting, too, there's the level of, prevail of prevalence of the um, knowledge and this kind of um, mix between hero worship and myth associated with the Mandalorians. Like you said, that they know enough that they can recognize them, they know aspects of their culture. Almost like I would read a book on Greek mythology kind of thing. Um, but they don't know, know enough of the details, enough personal exposure to really necessarily get them right. But it's interesting that they know about the Mandalorians in a way that we see uh, a couple episodes from now. They do not know about things like the Force or the Jedi. Oh, yeah, no. So, Spencer, this would kind of be like if I, like, we were in the kitchen and I was, like, burning tortillas and I was like, but your family's Hispanic. Would you be motivated to actually cook the, the good tortilla? No, we, we see this on every freaking episode. I just say, fuck you, and then walk away. <laughs> Sorry, it's just trying That'd to work be my out a joke. response to this. <laughs> it works on Mandalore, though. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it, it does, and it, it shows that even though he's not burning tortillas, you son of a bitch. I just, sorry, man. I'm just trying to make a joke. But he, <laughs> uh, he, he is motivated by it, and he feels like a, a very sincere connection to the Mandalorian people, and that comes up in later episodes, like mm -hmm. very much so. So they arrive at the uh, at the camp where the asset is. And Mando tries to pay Quill, and he refuses payment. He says he helped because they have arrived. And to your point, what you pointed out earlier, that, that, that it's an endless stream of mercenaries trying to get to the asset. It's really screwing up his area, his region. Right. He says he's helping Mando because he's a Mandalorian. And if the stories are true, Mando will make short work of it. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, reputation precedes him. It, it definitely seems like Quill is here retired. He does not want to be part he of d- things Yeah, anymore. exactly. He, he very much is, yeah. Uh, so Mandalorian observes this camp. And I think the first thing we can do from this camp is that it is almost over-fortified. There are almost too many guys there. This is not... This is an almost unreasonable amount of guys that are guarding this facility right now. Which... <laughs> Sounds like you're reading off my notes. Here's here's my next sentence. There are a, all caps, lot of people guarding this asset. <laughs> Spencer, what's that about? <laughs> yeah, it, it puts him on guard and puts us on guard, too. Is this like, well, this is weird. Like, this is an unsustainable amount of people in the middle of nowhere guarding this thing. Mm-hmm. Which puts us on edge is that, okay... We knew this was a big off-books kind of deal, but how big is this? Apparently it's big enough that our second bounty hunter is just starting to waltz in the front door while Mandalorian while the Mandalorian is watching. So I will say this to our listeners that in my life, I have prided myself on being the biggest Star Wars nerd of any of my friends. That I always knew more than any of my friends. And Spencer, you and I watched this show and you said, is that an IG droid? I did, yeah. And I realized at that moment, damn it, I'm I'm silver medal right now. <laughs> you knew it. You knew it. You I really did. Right no, I, I promise you, I did not know that was an IG droid. But it, as soon as you said it, I mean, I you know, I started looking at it, and I was like, yeah, I vaguely remember that, but I never would have come up with it. But uh, what we're referencing now is that as Mando is looking at this camp, a bounty droid comes up. It's IG eleven. It's an IG droid, and very very powerful droid. And he's after the same asset as Mando. And this is the first inclination that we have that Mando was not the only person given this assignment. Right. And it's a key, it's a key detail. It's um, interesting to see in this scene that they're both of the IG unit, IG 11 and the Mandalorian are eminently capable in their own ways, but they could not have a more different style if they tried. Yep. Uh Of where IG 11 is incredibly capable in combat to a, a, like, to a degree that only a machine would in terms of the precision of its ability. But it has no subtlety, and it clearly would have died here where the Mandalorian, the Mandalorian hadn't in, you know, intervened. Oh, yeah, it would. And both of them probably would have. I mean, yes. I, don't, I don't know that the Mandalorian would have actually gone through with the mission. I think he probably would have fled. But mm-hmm. without each other, they never would have succeeded. And so what we're talking about is uh, the, the IG droid gets hit. Mandalorian... Uh, talks to him. They actually strike a deal. They're going to work together and split the reward. Mm-hmm. Which, which is really funny. It's a funny scene inter- of him interacting with the IG unit. Is that the IG unit is not willing to agree to any terms unless they're clearly specified right now. It's like you know, let's let's work together. There's people shooting at us. It's like, no, I need exact terms right now before I. As a lawyer, anything. you had to appreciate that, right? I was just overjoyed of where he wants precise terms and precise like divisions of rewards specified now is that okay we'll divide the profits but i get all the promotional advancement as a result of this like good on you to even think of that but also like shout out to the writing of the show because we've already established that mando has an issue with droids and in order to get the asset the big payout the best car steal to get new armor what does he have to do he has to team with a droid right which he it's begrudging to a certain degree, but it also shows his level of practicality. That this is a necessary thing for his objective. He will do that thing, regardless of his own personal qualms about it. 
Yep. So they start to work together. They get pinned down and he makes a break for the asset. They get pinned again and a major cannon is brought out. This is not the only time this happens in the series. This is a big blaster cannon and Mando gets IG-11 to take fire. Basically, hey, you go out there and you get shot, which uh, shout out to the droid for agreeing to this, but he does do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, go out there, get shot. And as he does it, he does create an IG-11. He creates, I'm saying he, but whatever. Uh, he creates a diversion and Mando commandeers the cannon and proceeds to kill fucking everybody. So shout oh, out to just, Mando. Yeah. yeah, it was a real badass moment for Mando. Mm-hmm. Uh, then go ahead. Just a key thing that's going to come up again later is that the IG unit tries on several occasions during the situation to self-destruct. Yeah, he does. Yeah, I, I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up. Um, he, and, and Mando, like, it's interesting because like he keeps telling him, no, no, don't do it. Now, Spencer, what was your read on that? Was that purely self-interest? Because, I'm... because, sorry, but it does seem that Mando. It, during the series, confuses droids with humans. He, yeah. he he puts on to them like a human personality. He doesn't really view them as just a machine. I think there's three things that's going behind this. Uh, just a spitball. I agree that it is his nature to immediately empathize and humanize. And that's interesting. Yeah. Because it would be too easy to assign him as just being, as said, a stoic, cold, remorseless machine himself. But in these moments, we clearly already start to establish that no... He's actually a very empathetic individual who is immediately has sympathy for those around him, including those that he views use as being partners in some way. Even if which it's somebody- is, which, which is like every John Wayne movie ever, right? Because yes. every John Wayne movie starts with him being a badass but being empathetic. All right, sorry, very, go ahead. Very much so. Point number two. It's also just practical right now. Is that he's, he's they're pinned down. If the IG unit is out of this fight, Mando's dead. Yep. Good as he is, he's dead. Point number three. It looks like a big bomb. I don't assume it's just going to kill the IG unit. I don't think Mando's assuming it will. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. He was probably thinking, damn, it's like a suicide bomber. I might not survive your explosion. That that looks like a full-on thermal grenade you've just opened in your chest. That's going to clear a lot like a 30-meter radius around us. I can't get away from that. Don't do it right now. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. And then, all right, so back to the recap. Mando then, interestingly, I think, he asked how the droid is. Yes. And the droid says he's okay. Mm-hmm. And they proceed to open the door leading to the asset. The tracking fob leads them to a pod. It's a pod that was like, kind of weird. Like the, there was like a blanket over it or something. It's very pointedly in the form of a floating egg. Yep. They open it. And Spencer. <gasps> what do they see? The what do they see, Spencer? Ever introduced in the Star Wars universe. Baby Yoda. Oh, God. We see Baby Yoda. All right, so Baby Yoda. Um, this is obviously not Baby Yoda. Um, no, you you fought the term Baby Yoda on the... You fought it on Reddit. You were so dedicated to fighting this. I did. So so they call this creature, uh, which they call the asset or the child in the show, uh, Baby Yoda because it's the same creature uh, or same species as Yoda. I know that this is five years after the end of Return of the Jedi, uh, and... Yoda's dead. This could not possibly be Yoda or, you know, a young Yoda. That's not happening. Mm -hmm. So I fought it on Reddit. I fought it. But I finally gave in because, I don't know, cultural zeitgeist, memes, gifs, that sort of thing. It's baby Yoda. It is 
the sensation. This is the thing that's driving the show. It mm -hmm. absolutely has captured the attention of everybody in the Star Wars universe. The idea that we have now a third character of that species. We have Yoda, of course. We have Yaddle, which was in episode one. We only saw her one time during a Jedi Council meeting. And now mm -hmm. we have the child. Yeah, and you know, when you were originally presenting this about, oh, it's not Baby Yoda, I don't know why they keep calling it that, I was like, yeah, you're right, I mean, it's just a member of the same species, and then, and then he was like, and then I was about to say what the name of that species was, you know, with my, you know, big boy Star Wars knowledge, and I paused and went, dup, dup, up, huh. up, yep, we don't know. Why, why don't I know this? And I looked it up, I was like, oh, we just don't know this. We have no idea, and so I, I, I originally hated the term Baby Yoda, I don't anymore. But I do know that the show, and especially John Favreau, showrunner, is rejecting it. He's trying to call it the child. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, we get a name. <laughs> Hopefully, we get a name later. I, th I do think that there's some indications in later episodes that we will get some level of a name and/or explanation about what the species is. But we can all agree, it is cute. It, it is cuteness personified, which apparently the Mandalorian agrees on. Spectacularly cute. Mando questions. How can this be 50 years old? Uh, IG-11 indicates that he's going to kill the child. Well, first off, IG-11 says, well, species age differently. Now, Spencer, for the folks that aren't big Star Wars enthusiasts, let's explain that Yoda, who was maybe, what, two feet tall? Something like that? Something like that, yep. Was about 950 years old when he died. Yeah, and had been training Jedi for like, you know, 700 years at the time of his death. Right. So the idea that this, you know, that the child is 50 years old and still looks and operates like an infant is not out of the question. Right. But it would be surprising. What I like about this reveal is it would be surprising to the average listener or mm -hmm. uh, average viewer. They would just go, how can this thing be 50 years old? Well, IG explains, well, it, species age differently. Mando and this is something, let me ask you this question. Do you think Mando knows about Yoda? Because I don't. No. I, I, from what we see before, having absolutely zero knowledge of the Force, I cannot believe he knows, has, has the slightest knowledge of Yoda. And that and that's kind of surprising in the in the zeitgeist, right? Because up until now, like, Yoda is so prevalent. He's just everywhere, omnipresent. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, like, somebody who's, he's not, he's learned it. I mean, he's not an idiot doesn't know about Yoda is, is kind of surprising, or at least it was surprising for me. I mean, it, it again suggests just the success of the Imperial Purge of the Jedi, which happened, you know, a couple, at this point, a generation or two in the past, is that the Jedi have been reduced to myth and the Force with them, and that clearly was a very successful Imperial effort in that regard. Yeah, and we see that later. Uh, yeah. Especially the not understanding the Force. But anyway, this is uh, the third species of uh, Yoda species. It's very exciting. I have multiple t-shirts with baby Yoda on <laughs> it. Spencer, maybe I'll send you some. I'll send you extra large. I know you like that. Uh, I don't have enough space for the t- I don't- I have no idea how you have storage place for your t-shirts, because I don't have enough space for the t-shirts you send me. <laughs> you would laugh if you saw my t-shirt drawer. Oh, it's just I can barely close it. But anyway, um, IG-11 indicates he's going to kill the child. And this is what I was talking about earlier, where IG-11 clearly got the instruction that the, ch the, the child, the asset, needs to die. That's not the instruction that Mando got. Mando mm -hmm. got from the doctor, it needs to be alive. 
it's it's an interesting way of of what I what IG11 says it too because it's a, it's a mechanical sense of loss of where he says that when they you know they discuss the idea of it being slowly lived IG11 frames it as it's a shame we'll never know in terms yep. of knowing more about the species just in the sense that there's a loss to the universe rather than there's any empathetic loss from my perspective but as he's raising his blaster to do it we see nope. off camera a shot with just enough ambiguity, you can think for a half second the child just got shot in a way that would probably lead to about half the Star Wars community never returning to the mythos. But instead... Yeah, yeah I'm probably there myself. I, I, I'm amused in a later episode of when a stormtrooper punches Yoda. That actor has just been non-stopped attacked on Twitter for just... Jason Sudeikis, yeah. Yes, just <laughs> months since. What what was really funny to me is that uh, Jason Sudeikis, I think he he worked with uh, Improv Group in Chicago. Yeah, he's been on SNL quite a bit too, right? And and that Improv Group, uh, after that episode was released, did like a fake press release. It was like, we are aware of the events with Jason Sudeikis, and we grow, we really apologize. We take, <laughs> you know, like that sort of thing. It's pretty funny, but yeah, I mean, you couldn't like, and I mean, John Favreau understands this. I have faith in him as a showrunner, but you could not introduce a child of Yoda species and kill it immediately. It was never no. going to happen. It would be a waste, honestly, of resources as well. In the same way that the IG-11 was lamenting, if you introduce a character of this potential, of this amount of lore attached to it, and then eliminate it right away, it's just, the only value there is shock value. It's a waste of, well, monstrous potential. Yeah, and another thing I'd like to point out is that, you know, some of the old Star Wars fans, you know, they get really upset with how it's been commercialized recently, especially since Disney acquired it. And, you know, it's basically like a lot of, like, toys and you know stuffed animals etc cetera, etc cetera. they the, the, the showrunners of mandalorian specifically did not tell anyone about baby yoda before the first episode came out so it took months for us to even get baby yoda toys i am which i really appreciated because i felt like they, they were saying what we're going to prioritize is the story over the commercialization over the toys over the plush you know things i'm amazed they were able to convince disney to do that because disney lost money with that yep. plan mm-hmm. that they, they i'm sure would have wanted a, a run of baby yoda toys ready to go the second that episode came out and they couldn't that's no. not what they were able to do i honestly and, think that favreau has that leverage yeah that's it, my it, guess anyway it makes for a better show that that factor wasn't released. Because you know that if the Baby Yoda toys were in production, it would have gotten out in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We would have known. <clears throat> but Favreau didn't want that to happen. He wanted his story to be, like, surprising. He wanted it to stand on its own. And he, he didn't, you know, he pushed Disney not to do that, which I thought was really a cool thing. And also, you know, kind of pushes back on folks who say that Star Wars has gotten too commercialized, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious about your opinion about interpreting what Mando did here, of where my default reaction when this happened was to assume that Man- the Mandalorian had been mind-controlled. That was actually my default for why he did Whoa. it. Whoa! By, by, the, by the child? That was my initial default reaction. It oh, pr- wow. It, it immediately transitioned into, no, we've already framed he's an empathetic individual. This makes sense. Okay. But that was my original default, was even like the, the two of them raising hands to match each other, I thought was in keeping with that. Yeah, no, I, I, 
that's an interesting take. I, I didn't have that. I mean, for me, I thought it was about 50% and 50%. 50% of, well, he was told to take the asset alive. Yes. Well, let, let's say 33% <laughs> told to take the asset alive. 33%, he wanted to just get the full bounty. So fuck sure. the IG droid. So let's just kill it. And I do think there was a level of he saw it and thought, well, this thing can't die. And and there's some evidence for that later. Yes. Where I he, agree. He, he clearly like has some level of empathy and affection for the child. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know. It's one of those three things. I, I didn't get the, the sort of mind control thing, though. I, I, I didn't I, think about that. She, just to show how Bridget and I are in the same damn wavelength, that was her thought, too, originally, too, when she just rewatched it with me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but yeah, the, the connection between the child and Mando. It's already established. Uh, yeah, and it becomes the backbone of the series, right? I mean, that, that's oh, yeah. really it's what the heart the narrative. Yeah. Completely it, it, agree. Now, we have segments. Well, uh, well before we before we do that, <clears throat> did you did you catch the end of the episode? Man, uh, Mando and the child have that sort of ET finger touch. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, that I think that I, I honestly think that was a shout out to ET. There are all throughout these first few episodes. There, this is not only a love letter to classic George Lucas; it's also a love letter to classic Spielberg, and it's great. There's yeah, few, and, and just fantasy in general, right? Uh, I mean, there's material in the second episode, which is just straight up Indiana Jones, and it's awesome. And it, it's a lot of great stuff here. <laughs> yep. All right. Let's get to our segments. Okay. All right. Line of the episode. Spencer, line of the episode. I mean, we have a bunch of options here. I mean, it's I've, very I've got, complicated. I've got 17 on my list. I okay. mean, it, it's just a rundown. Now, every single one of them is I have spoken. I have spoken. But it, <laughs> it is 17 on the list. Yeah, I mean, we could. I guess we could spend the next half hour going through it, but no, it's a wrap. Best line of the episode, season one, Mandalorian, uh, episode one. I have spoken. It's going to be a damn fine contender for line of the series. It is no way around it. Ah, it's great. And I was telling you uh, off pod the other day that, like, you know, I I'm I have a lot of t-shirts as you talked about earlier, and I I, I just one of the things I like to do, get dumb, funny t-shirts. Mm-hmm. And three or four days after this season one premiered on Disney Plus. Now I was there day one. I watched it day one. I saw a Quill t-shirt where his face is on it and it says, I have spoken. And I was Aww. like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is clearly hitting the cultural zeitgeist here because uh, yeah. in three or four days, that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Especially right. considering what we talked about earlier, where there was no leaks. I mean, there was no Baby Yoda. There was no Quill. There was nothing. And people didn't know. But it's like people watched it and immediately said, oh, we need to go. Oh, oh, I have spoken. We got to put, yeah. put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, they were so careful with the marketing of this. It was really interesting. Because it was, it was hyped. People were excited about it. Yeah. But they could, have, they could have just laid out everything the way they usually do and diluted the material for months in advance. But they just didn't do that. Which, you know I like The Rise of Skywalker. I, I do like that movie. But they did exactly what you just talked about with the return of Palpatine. Yeah. Which because is that was shame. forecasted for a month before. And it's like, why did you do that? Like, why couldn't it have been a surprise? Mm-hmm. I think they originally used, like, his laugh in a trailer or something. And like, mm-hmm. okay, that's the most distinct laugh in all the Star Wars saga. We know well, what another thing they did. Another thing they did is they had the, uh, the actor... Uh, who who plays Palpatine? They told him he was free to talk about it. 
Oh God, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. So multiple interviews, like months before the, the, the movie came out, he was talking about, yeah, I came back. Yeah. Palpatine is back. This show does it much better. Much better. Indeed. Yep. All right. I have spoken. Line of the episode. Let's go to our next segment. Spencer, take it away. Uh, for our next segment, we go through what moment of this particular episode just most resonated with our most nostalgic Star Wars selves. What moment brought us back to the moments of children of us just enjoying the original Star Wars material. And for me, this episode, one of the things I most adored was the various classic legacy Star Wars species they brought back in here and worked into the script. Of where we talked about bringing an IG unit, which just, I, moment I saw that went, that is not, that is, that looks exactly like IG-88. Yeah, oh my God. You for that. Yeah. They just introduced an IG unit, which mm-hmm. is just such a great callback for a bounty droid. You don't, yep. again, this is what a series can do well, is that you can work the nostalgia in a ways that aren't just repeating what you're doing before, but you're playing homage. You're working so Spencer, in the existing for universe. Uh, I'm sorry to cut you off, but in Empire Strikes Back, when Darth Vader is, he has the collection of bounty hunters. Yep. Is there an IG droid there? IG-88 himself is there on the stage looking exactly the same. Yes. Ah, good call. Yep. It's, it's, it's a per- if you're going to do a bounty droid, what other bounty droid can you do? Perfect. The fact, again, that we have an Ugnot, like from Cloud City, working in the Carbonite uh, and below the, cl- in the cl- bowels of Cloud City, playing, uh, pronounce the name for me again, Quill? Quill? Quill. Yep. Quill. Is great. <clears throat> like the pen. We haven't seen that species in, like, you know... Like, when did, when did Empire Strikes Back come out? 80? Yeah, like, 1980? like 35 years, yeah. So Whatever that's just wonderful to have that, have that character back. Even just minor characters, too. Like, a freaking... What, the guy he cuts in half is a freaking Corrin, the sister species of Mon Calamari that live alongside the Calamari people. I like that they're able to work in the existing ref, things that I recognize. That At a certain point with the newer films, I could be watching it and I can't know it's Star Wars. Because it's, at times, so completely doing worlds we've never seen before, characters we've never seen before. Which can work, but it doesn't resonate with the nostalgia that's so important to my enjoyment. So, question for you. Is that why you like The Force Awakens better than the other two? It's... I liked The Force Awakens the way a child would watching it. Of where it Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. things I knew, things I recognized, (laughs) things that resonated. Yep. And I enjoyed it on that level immensely. Yep. As a film itself, it's only so successful. But as a work of nostalgia to get people back invested in the series, it's well done. I agree. I, th- I think that was the strength of that that movie. It's it's not a great movie. It's basically a new hope redone. But it did bring that like you know going to the bit that it did bring that nostalgia back, and that's what 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 sucked people back in. I think. So for me, the various little references they made to uh, various species of the Star Wars universe that ground this in the Star Wars universe, it was just so great for me. It reminded me of those days of flipping through the character guides late at night, and it was so mm-hmm. much fun. Yep. I agree. All right, I'll go. <clears throat> so <laughs> my nostalgic moment of the episode was, and this is kind of lame, very basic, it was the reveal of Baby Yoda. Now, let me tell you why the reveal of Baby Yoda was such a big deal for me, because... When I watched Star Wars, I watched The Empire Strikes Back. I didn't know. I was very young. I didn't know there was a third movie. (laughs) And it took like two months. And finally, my brother told me, yeah, there's a third movie. So immediately. What? I know. And I had my parents take me out to Blockbuster. We had a Blockbuster in in the town. And we got the movie. I watched it that night. And two, three years later, I mean, Yoda's always been my favorite character. I 
on a DOS computer wrote it is like the first time I've ever telling this. I wrote um, like I don't know four or five chapter story of Yoda on Dagobah being visited by the Emperor. Really? Yeah, I did. Like it was it was, <laughs> it was supposed to take place between The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. I wrote this whole thing on a DOS computer about how the Emperor <laughs> showed up and he was like f- talking to Yoda and he was trying to negotiate with him and they eventually fought and the whole thing. Did you did you also write the next Game of Thrones book while you were while, while you were there? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a very Martin move, but that's the only computer I had. Sure, me too at the same age. Yeah. I printed the whole thing out and it was on that paper. I don't know if you remember the the paper that printed from those old computers that had like the the, the, the sides on it. Oh yeah, the old dot matrix kind of style printing. Yeah, paper. yeah, yes. dot matrix printer. Yeah. So I printed it out and brought it to school, and had folks read it, and my friends were like kind of looked at me like, "Dude, I'm not gonna read this like page thing." <laughs> I would have read that in a goddamn heartbeat. <laughs> Quality fan fiction set in the Star Wars universe. I'm down. I'm sure it was terrible, but like I just remember like spending like countless Saturday and Sundays like trying to work out how Palpatine would get to Dagobah, how he would know that Yoda was in Dagobah, how they would fight, who would win. Obviously, they both had to sur- survive. Like I did the whole thing. So that <laughs> it's a little bit of a backstory about what a geek I am about Star Wars. But yeah, that's that's why the reveal of uh, the child who is. Uh, Yoda species was such a big deal for me. That's great. <laughs> All right. Do we have our last oh. segment? Which our is, last segment. Was is it worth it? Worth it? Uh, this is an interesting one to assess because it clearly has a high amount of payoff attached to it. Like more than is even reasonable, I think. And very much targeted to the Mandalorian here. But I think you have to also say that this almost seems like an operation that is designed to kill the people that are hired to do it. Yeah, I'm gonna say it's. Whew, I'm gonna say it's not worth it for the money. I'm gonna say it is worth it for what ends up happening, which I guess is kind of like a cop out. But like his connection to the child mm-hmm. later on, you know, obviously is worth all yep. of his efforts. It, I, but for the money itself, for the Beskar steel, no, I don't think so. Yeah, it's one of those things where the moment he got in that ridge and looked over that town. If you were me, you would have walked away, right? You wouldn't even waited to look at the IG unit walking in. You're just like, nope, that's not going to happen. Hell yeah. That, but I mean, I think Mando has like a pretty big ego. Yeah, <laughs> so I think he's thinking, I can, I can handle it. But I, I agree. From a bounty hunting standpoint, not worth it. Too great of a risk is the reason too many people have died in this operation. From a plot standpoint, imminently important. Absolutely necessary. Yeah, completely agree. All right. Anything else we, anything else we want to cover? Nah, I think we're good. I'm looking forward to talking about the next episode with you. Yeah, me too. All right, everybody. This is Mangum Talks TV. We just covered Season 1, Episode 1 of The Mandalorian. We'll catch you again in a week. Thanks, everybody. See ya.